for The Life of the World is produced by the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. For more information, visit faith.yale.edu. When a bacterial or viral pandemic like COVID-19 breaks out, the social pandemic of fear is not far behind. That's partly because when we see others fearing, we catch the malady of fear ourselves. Fear is infectious. That's partly also because the culture of fear has weakened our immunity to fear. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of your humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. It's the first week of April in 2020, and there's a crack in the hull. There's a leak in the lifeboat. The pandemic caused by COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, seemed slowly to leak in. It was other countries' problem until it was our problem. A collective move to crisis mode has massively disrupted life all over the world. We refresh the news, scrolling and trolling social media as exiles in our own homes. Some of us sitting on thrones of toilet paper, our healthcare workers desperately in need of protective supplies and ventilators, working to keep a semblance of economy on the rails. More and more people trying to keep a semblance of a job. What is the meaning of shelter in place when you're uncertain of how you'll pay rent for that place? We wait for political action. We wait for stimulus checks. And we hope but we fear. The fact is, we're still in that early mode of immediate reaction to a dangerous crisis event with anxiety, worry, the adrenaline and cortisol spikes as we feel like we're losing control that we once had, if we ever had it at all. We thought we were impervious and immune to global pandemics and that many of us, myself included, just didn't think of them at all. As of this week, we've topped 1 million cases of COVID-19 with 60,000 deaths worldwide. Stock markets have tumbled almost 30% from an all-time high in February. 3.3 million Americans became jobless last week. And then this week, that figure doubled. And 10 million Americans don't have a job they had two weeks ago. Oh, and yeah, there's still that election cycle that we're in the middle of. As threats both known and unknown abound, this week's episode of For the Life of the World is about fear. Specifically, a diagnosis of the culture of fear in COVID-19 time. We're all right in the middle of this, but we need to stay alert, reflective, attentive, and caring about our individual and collective response. If you're just hearing about us, don't forget to subscribe to our feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll drop a new episode every Saturday, and maybe the occasional midweek. Today's show features Miroslav Wolf on the need to fear rightly as the culture of fear threatens to engulf us. Matt Crosman on anxiety and seeing oneself as a source of contagion. And Drew Collins on the ways that fear induces a desire for action and elimination of danger, when perhaps what is most needed is trust in the close, if hidden, presence of God. Thanks for listening. The great Danish Christian thinker, Søren Kierkegaard, believed that we have to learn how to be afraid rightly. If we don't, he insisted, we will be lost. Lost either for knowing no fear at all, or lost by being completely engulfed by fear. And then he added, 
The person who has learned how to be afraid in the right way has learned the most important thing of all. Now, I'm not sure that being afraid rightly is the most important thing of all. Though it comes close to being that if we believe the Hebrew Bible, which insists that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm also not sure that we have to worry too much about people not knowing to fear at all. For almost all human beings, every one of us a finite, every one of us a fragile and self-aware creature, fear seems to be unavoidable. When it comes to fear, I think we can ask two questions. One is, what do we fear for? For what do we fear? And the answer today is fairly simple and deeply distressing. As we watch COVID-19 spread and the number of dead rise exponentially, we fear for our own lives and lives of those who we love, our children, our elderly parents, our spouses, and our friends. Or as we see the economy slow down, as people lose jobs and wages do not get paid, we fear for our livelihood. We worry how we will put food on the tables or pay rent. We worry that together with our economy, our whole way of life might collapse. But there's a second question, and that is the question, what are we afraid of? Now, that's about the source of fear. And in this case, the source of fear is easy to name, but it is hard to identify and even harder, I think, to understand. Now, we are afraid of a particular virus, novel coronavirus named SARS-CoV-2. Now, the difficulty is that the virus does not come holding a flashing red light, waving its little hands and screaming at us, I'm here. You can be infected without knowing it, and you can be a source of infection without you or anyone around you knowing that you are. As a consequence, we're not just afraid of the virus. We are afraid, potentially, of everyone and almost everything. A carrier of the virus, and therefore a source of danger, is everyone and everything. Between us and much of what we see and touch, there is something like an invisible aura of danger, and therefore also an invisible source of fear. What's worse, the fear is magnified because we don't understand well the character and the behavior of the virus, and we are unable either to eliminate or adequately control it. No wonder that many of us engulfed in fear Instead of fulfilling its proper function to protect us from danger, fear itself has become our danger. We languish, and some of us, to use Kierkegaard's word, are lost, living as we do a life of fear. Our lives are in turmoil, like Cain after killing his brother Abel. We have become fugitives and wanderers, and we are such even in what should be the safety of our own homes. We are anxious, we are gripped by incohate sadness over the future. When we are engulfed by fear, we don't just perceive our neighbors as potential source of danger. They appear to us as competitors, 
even as enemies in the struggle for scarce resources, even if that resource is that crazy toilet paper. So the fear erodes social trust, without which no healthy social life is possible. And of course, the more we fear, the more we are focused on ourselves and the less we are capable of caring for others. Fear diminishes our other directedness, fear diminishes our civic mindedness, which is precisely what we need in pandemics. Fear also clouds our judgment, our ability to make decisions. Struggling to ward off imagined or exaggerated dangers, we fail to attend to real dangers. Expanding our resources on false remedies, we are unable to implement real remedies. Being in the grip of fear is bad for us, almost as bad as not fearing at all. Engulfed in fear, we are lost in a toxic fog. We seem not to be able to find our way out. Here's Matt Crosman, Associate Research Scholar and Director of the Life Worth Living Program at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. He and Miroslav co-authored a recent book, the name should ring a bell, For the Life of the World, Theology That Makes a Difference. It strikes me that often these days I'm feeling like I'm the source of contagion, right? We can sort of think of the, the world as potential sources of contagion like that, that could harm me. Um, I'm finding that like a lot of my energy is spent on considering myself a source of contagion. That is, this might have something to do with the like Lutheran theology I was raised with. Um, uh, I've always thought of myself as a source of, of moral contagion. Um, but um, I, I, I wonder if, Marissa, I wonder if you could respond a bit to that. If, if that's sort of, um, some of us are walking around sort of feeling like we, we have something to be afraid of. Others of us, and I think probably all of us to some degree are fit in both camps. We're also walking around fearing that we are, in fact, the thing that others ought to be afraid of. We're the source of contagion or going to cause, just by going on and living our lives as we normally would, we could cause, you know, untold harm. <laughs> Um, to, to people we know, to people we don't know. Um, I, I feel like that's, that's raising my anxiety level as well these days. Uh, Matt, you mentioned Luther. That there's something really Lutheran uh, about it. Uh, namely, the fear is there, not just that, that I, by just my sheer being there, am that which might be as well, but that precisely in trying to attend uh, in the most caring way to whatever I need to attend, I might still... Uh, in doing that cause uh, cause harm. But, yeah, that, that, that seems to be a, um, a, a, a part of paralyzing um, experience in some ways. And I wonder if, in, if even more broadly than the sort of challenge of, we, we tend to think consequentially, we're trying to maximize the best sort of outcomes. And in a very, very complex system, we don't know what the outcomes are going to be of, of our actions. And, and I think in particular, I've I found myself thinking a lot about to what extent are, are Christian ethics actually good at thinking about moral actions that you can only ever evaluate in terms of sort of um, just statistical likelihoods of, of, of causing harm. 
right? It's, it's one thing to think ethically about like, I take an action, I see that someone's harmed, but here it's, I'm, I'm taking an action. I don't, I don't know, like maybe someone could be harmed. And I think the best knowing that I could do would only ever get me to like a probabilistic sort of estimation of harms that I might be causing to people that I'll never see. Um, and there's something in me that, that like, that's just somehow does an end run around some of my, like some of the psychology of my, uh, Christian ethic. That's all about love of a neighbor, usually like a neighbor that I can see. But might, might it not be the case, uh, here, uh, might this not be example also where our personal individual interest and interest of the larger public in to a large extent, uh, overlap. And so you have this strange case, right, where uh, attending to yourself in the proper way is also attending uh, to others uh, in, a, in a significant way. And I think that that's, in a sense, a, a hopeful sign where we can stabilize the, the behavior that, that comes to our benefit and redounds also to benefit of others. Then you end up with a surprising, a surprising moment then. And I, I wonder whether this explains some of what we saw in sort of Christian culture response to the virus is where then an impulse to resist one's own personal fear actually, you know, and say like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be afraid of the virus. I'm going to live, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to live courageously um, in the, in the face of this threat. Um, because your interests and the interests of the group are aligned, your willingness to sort of um, put your own interest and, and not live in, re in response to your personal fear, um, your reversal of that mm -hmm. <laughs> actually also then drives you not to take appropriate uh, precautions. Um, and, and does that make sense? So it's yeah, sort of yeah, yeah. because our interests are, are aligned, then a sort of simplistic Christian ethic that that anticipates that they're going to be at odds with one another. And, and then we try to subvert, we try to put our, ourselves second, but because they're aligned, we're actually putting our neighbor second as well. In, in which case, I think we're just seeing evidence of the fact that in that moment, then we are just too caught up in our own fears. And we're not, I think we're not fearing the right thing then. If, if, if we're thinking, fearing mostly our own, the impact on us and not fearing um, the sort of impact on, on, the, on, the, on, on our neighbors. Um, that, that's how we find ourselves into that sort of dead end. Today we seem to be engulfed uh, in fear, to use the term that uh, Kierkegaard uh, used, and we seem not to be able to find our way out. But what hinders our way out isn't merely a personal weakness. It is also a culture of fear. That phrase, the culture of fear, uh, comes originally, I believe, from Frank Furedi, who has written extensively about it. There was an original book in um, 1997 entitled Culture of Fear. And then more recently, um, How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. I believe it was 2018. And he describes, he describes their cultural fear. What he is referring to is not simply the fact that fears are contagious, pervasive, and then often share. You think of fear of immigrants, of criminals, of terrorists, of natural disasters, of conspiracies. Uh, not in that they are kind of in that sense uh, cultural and social and cultural phenomenon. He didn't also mean that media which shape 
our picture of reality systematically exaggerates fears uh, and then infects us with those fears. He did not mean also that politicians often stoke fears so that they can gain power or that they can stay in power. It can be of interest to politicians also to minimize dangers, as President Trump originally did with uh, COVID-19. And as, as we speak, Brazilian President Bolsonaro still does. Like false prophets in the Bible, they mislead people saying, peace, peace, when there's actually no peace to be found. Back to Frank Ferreira, he didn't also mean that advertisers sometimes manufacture fears so that companies can sell unnecessary products that promise protection from imagined or exaggerated harms. All this uh, intentional and unintentional fear-mongering is very worrisome, I think. But that was not Ferreira's main point. By culture of fear, he meant that we experience ourselves to a large degree as threatened, as vulnerable, as fragile, as inadequate to cope with the dangers that face us, that we seem easily gripped by fear and increasingly lack ability to live with danger, let alone to flourish danger notwithstanding. In biblical words, He points out that we are increasingly unable to sing the Lord's song in the strange land of danger and the fear. Now, keep in mind, Ferreira's claim is not that we fear more today than we feared in previous centuries. There's no telling exactly whether that is the case or not. His claim is that we have forgotten how to live well with fear. And one reason for the culture of fear, for this forgetfulness, is that the primary way we have come to deal with the problem of fear in the course of modernity is by seeking to eliminate dangers, the external sources of fear. By the contrast, through most human history, the main way people dealt with danger and fear was by cultivating courage to face dangers that could not be eliminated. That's largely because in ancient societies, People had few resources, knowledge, technological know-how, perhaps wealth. They had few such resources to work on eliminating dangers. They felt impotent with respect to many dangers. Prime example, perhaps being pandemics. Think of Black Death or flu pandemic in the early 20th century. Today, technological developments have made it possible to eliminate and diminish many dangers. But these same developments have also helped form the expectation of being able to create a fully safe environment. Paradoxically, this expectation itself makes us more feel fearful, for it focuses our hopes on eliminating danger so much that we tend to forget about the importance of conquering fear. The truth is that dangers cannot be eliminated from human life and that we cannot get rid of fear from our lives by eliminating its sources. As this pandemic shows, sources of danger seem not to be diminished in the modern world. It is the reality of these dangers, and not simply a culture of fear that feeds the dystopian mood of today. Moreover, the very technology which helps us mitigate dangers 
also creates new dangers. It generates risks, which are the consequences of our action, but which we are incapable of identifying often, certainly not identifying at the time when we embarked upon a given course of action. For example, things we use daily are full of toxic materials that were originally not recognized as such. Now, sociologists call this kind of living with these kinds of risks, which is a modern phenomenon, living in risk societies. And that creates also a sense of being endangered and gives us reasons to fear. More basically, I think, though, as long as we remain human, we will be constitutionally fragile, vulnerable, never capable of placing ourselves far from the edge of breaking down, far from abyss of death. My point is this, as we are busy doing the important, I emphasize the important, but unending work of eliminating dangers, we are forgetting to cultivate the ability not to be ruled by fear when facing dangers. When a bacterial or viral pandemic like COVID-19 breaks out, the social pandemic of fear is not far behind. That's partly because when we see others fearing, we catch the malady of fear ourselves. Fear is infectious. That's partly also because the culture of fear has weakened our immunity to fear. So the task before us is twofold. We need to work assiduously on diminishing dangers. In the case of COVID-19, we need to understand the disease better, to find cures and vaccines, to practice personal hygiene and social distancing. This is not acting in fear, but acting out of love and concern for the common good. But we also need to fight against the culture of fear. Since we cannot eliminate all dangers, and since it takes time to eliminate dangers we can eliminate, we always have to live with dangers, both real and imagined. We need to cultivate the ability to live with fear, to master it, rather than letting it engulf us. To wrap things up today, Drew Collins, Associate Research Scholar at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, who recently taught with Miroslav our Christ and Being Human course at Yale Divinity School. Drew draws out a scriptural connection. The prophet Elijah taking action when you're terrified and seeking especially the action of God. So one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, um, an additional dynamic, I think, which is that... um, Fear has a way of validating itself, um, taking a misperception of danger and making it real. You know, there's a diff- there is a difference between genuine and invented fears, but it seems to me that it's also the case that invented fears um, are particularly pernicious because they can become real. You know, so as soon as we act out of the fear of losing the competition for resources with others in our community, the threat of competition becomes real. You know, which means I think that con- when I think about the contagiousness of fear. It seems it's we could we could maybe also describe it as um, coercive. There's a way in which our fears are foisted upon other people, and and um, 
even in, in, in response to misperceptions and invented dangers, um, end up in some ways making those invented dangers real and forcing other people to, to grapple with them as well. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. And uh, and if I'm hearing you rightly, that underscores the importance of um, kind of cultivating ability to live well in the context of dangers, not just because there are real dangers there, but but that constantly new imagined dangers are also uh, manufactured, and that at the level of our experience, we not we often cannot tell which one which one is which. Yeah, exactly. Fears it's inherently reactive. It's not a sound basis for sort of the mitigation of future risks or uh, a course of action precisely because it lacks a central commitment at its core and it's purely responsive. And I've been thinking about this story, you know, um, First Kings 19. Elijah has a sort of sacrifice off with the prophets of Baal. Jezebel finds out and she says, what you did to them, I'm going to do to you. And Elijah flees into the wilderness afraid for his life it says it's fascinating because you know elijah has been bold up until this point in response to fear of his life and that jezebel has put in him he flees he flees into the wilderness um into utter isolation while he's out there the word of the lord comes to elijah and tells him to go out and stand on the mountain before the lord for the lord is about to pass by and he's out there on mount horeb and a great wind issues forth but the lord's not there and um, there's an earthquake and there's a fire, but the Lord isn't present in either of those. Where Elijah does discern the presence of the Lord is in the sound of sheer silence. And I think what I, what I take from that is that we often expect um, of ourselves to respond to fear with action, or we expect God. We pray that God will um, alleviate our fears by acting, changing something. But what if the passage suggests that that's not that the, that the that God's promise in the midst of fear, real, genuine fear, is first and foremost not necessarily of some grand gesture or grand action or even a response, you know, but um, just the promise of God's presence, the promise that God is, and the trust that God is real and present in a direct way, but but hidden. That's it for this episode, but one final note. While this episode has focused on the diagnosis of fear, next week we'll discuss the particulars of fearing rightly and conquering fear. As my colleague at the Center for Faith and Culture, Karen Franzen, pointed out, the fact is many people all over the world don't have the privilege of eliminating the dangers they face. Far from thinking we can deal with fear by eliminating the danger, we have a lot to learn from those people who cultivate faith and courage in the very midst of threat. More on that next Saturday. Thanks for listening. For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured theologian Miroslav Wolf, the founding director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. You can follow him on Twitter at Miroslav Wolf. This episode also featured Matt Crosman and Drew Collins, both associate research scholars at the Center for Faith and Culture. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edited and produced the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're looking for a way to support what we're doing, that could be as simple as telling a friend, leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, or sharing the show in your social feeds. Thanks for listening. 
We'll be back next week. 